All right. Good morning. As Kevin said, my name is Tyler, and it is good to be here with you this morning. I was just thinking about it. Um, I was talking with a friend yesterday, and um, that's not a throwaway line. Um, it's good to see y'all. Uh, it, it actually um, is really good to be with y'all um, week in and week out on Sunday and getting to come worship uh, and knowing that I'm coming to worship our Lord um, with others that, that love him as well. And so that is, it, it does something for my soul and, and uplifts my spirit to be with y'all. So um, Last week, we began a new sermon series uh, entitled The Firm Foundation. And this is an eight-week series um, where we're kind of going back and looking at some of the basics of the Christian faith. We're going in and just looking about what, what, what are the key things that we believe in Christianity. As I said last week, this is not an exhaustive survey of the tenets of Christianity, but it is a reminder for us of things that are true, that we can um, that we can stand upon, that are foundational for our faith um, and how we live out our faith. So this is, this is intended to be something that we can all grasp onto and rally around and really come together around um, in these eight weeks. Uh, last week, we covered the love of God, or at least we, we talked about the love of God. There's no way that we can fully exhaust and fully cover the love of God. Um, God's love is so deep that we can only ever scratch the surface uh, but today we are going to be talking about our justification in Christ. Um, Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, we believe that our justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's a refrain that you're going to hear frequently with us. And today we're going to dive into exactly what we mean by that. Um, August 6, 1945 was a day that changed the course of history. Remembrance of that day still affects many people around the world to this day. It was a day that marked the beginning of the end of World War II. But it was also a day that would eventually lead to worldwide fear that has persisted um, even to this day. August 6, 1945 was the day that the first atomic bomb was deployed over Hiroshima, Japan. The immediate result of that was that 80,000 people lost their lives and tens of thousands of more would eventually succumb to radiation poisoning from the bomb. The total devastation of that one bomb um, was more than twice the population of Stillwater, just for some perspective. This attack, along with the subsequent attack on Nagasaki, ultimately led to the unconditional surrender from the Japanese. The, the war would soon be over, but the repercussions of this bomb would continue to spread. Two years after the end of the war, former allies, the US and the USSR, would split harshly over ideological differences, uh, and the world would be introduced to what we now know as the Cold War. At that point in history, everyone was afraid. There were fallout shelters being built all over the world. Non-perishable food and supplies were stockpiled, and that practice still persists to this day. You can still find signs in buildings, even here in Stillwater, um, that identify the presence of a fallout shelter should it ever be needed. 
The reality was a weapon of mass destruction had been released into the world and no one felt like they had any control. People just started trying to find ways to survive. And so with that in mind, as we go through our text today, I'm going to jump in starting with verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So just as nuclear weapons entered the world, fracturing the idea of relative safety that many, particularly those in wealthier Western countries, um, had felt, sin in the same way came into the world and fractured the fabric of creation. Just as nuclear weapons brought death and destruction, sin brought death that spread to all men because all have sinned. And just as nuclear weapons can now not be uncreated, sin cannot be taken back. It is here and it must be addressed. We can't just pretend that it doesn't exist or that it will go away. We know that sin and evil are real. People's reactions to nuclear weapons was to create fallout shelters, to, to find a way to get away from the effects of these weapons. We've done similar things with sin. Uh, almost every religion out there, if you start studying the religions of the world, almost every religion that is out there um, is going to try to address the existence of evil. It's going to try to address our sin. It has something to say about that. We all know, everybody in the world knows that sin exists. We all know that evil exists, and we all know that ultimately we don't match up to any sort of standard of perfection, no matter how good we may think we are. Deep down, we know we don't match up. So what are we going to do about it? The solution that most religions offer is to try to minimize our own involvement in evil, to limit our engagement with sin. And on the other side, we are to try to do as much good as we possibly can do. So we're going to limit our sin, we're going to limit the bad, and we're going to maximize the good that we can do. That's, that's the goal, that's, that's what most religions are trying to push us towards. Um, basically, most religions in the world, um, they, they boil down to trying to tip the scales of our life in the direction of doing more good than bad. Um, for some religions... The better you do, the better your next life will be until you eventually reach some sort of enlightenment or um, internal freedom of the soul. Um, for other religions, if you do more good than bad, then your deeds will be weighed out and you'll have a good afterlife. Um, for yet others, you have to follow every tenet or pillar of that religion and hope that in the end your God will be merciful to you and let you in. Here's the problem. At the end of the day, no matter which of these roads you take, sin is still there and hasn't been dealt with. We're just hoping it'll be washed over. It's essentially like trying to take a nuclear warhead and bury it in a sandbox in the middle of the city and then play hot potato with the detonator but hoping that nothing bad happens. At the end of the day, there's, there's no other outcome to sin than death. And just as sin entered the world through one man, death followed because, as Paul tells us, the wages of sin is death. 
For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Paul here is addressing a potential question that could be brought up in this matter. What about people who don't know that what they're doing is sinful? It's a reasonable question. What about people who were alive before God's law was given? What about those people? We aren't going to spend too much time here today, but here's the basic premise. If there isn't a law against something, you may have done something that isn't good, but you didn't technically break a law, right? However, that doesn't mean that it's not deadly. Let's go back to our analogy. If you obtained a nuclear weapon today, you would have broken all kinds of laws. Like, you'd have people looking for you, right? But before there were laws about nuclear weapons, you couldn't be charged with breaking those laws, right? Uh, That doesn't mean, though, that playing with warheads wouldn't have been dangerous and deadly. It just means that there weren't laws in place yet for them. Here's the long and short of it. Sin is bad because it destroys everything it touches and it spreads like radiation from a nuclear fallout. And yet the reality is that each of us have our own stash of proverbial mini nuclear warheads that we take out and play around with from time to time, thinking that it's not really going to hurt anybody. Paul's not going to let us do that here though. Sin is devastating and where it goes, death is sure to follow. But... But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, death. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And this is incredible. If we stop and think about it, it's incredible. For those of us that have spent a a lot of time in the church, it can be easy for for us to kind of be desensitized to some extent to this stuff. We can grow accustomed to hearing about things like salvation and forgiveness and atonement and propitiation and justification, but don't miss this. The weight of this can't be overestimated for us. Sin has entered the world, and it has been passed down from generation to generation, starting with Adam. And with sin came death. But, as Paul tells us, there is a gift. As we entered the launch codes, Jesus himself jumped on the nuclear warhead to save us. He shielded us with his body and covered us with his blood, just as the blood of the lambs covered the Israelites from destruction in Egypt. He is our stronghold and fortress. He is our nuclear fallout shelter. And I'll do you one better. He is also the sustenance that is stockpiled in those shelters. He gives us his body, which was broken as a sacrifice to shield us as our daily bread, just as God gave manna to the Israelites in the desert as their daily bread. Not only does he shield us, he gives us his own body that we might have life. 
As Ephesians 2.1 says, we were dead in the trespasses and sin in which we once walked. But, as Paul tells us here, the free gift is not like the trespass. I take this for granted far too often. We were dead. Since we're talking about Adam, let's go back and look at what happened there. In, in Genesis 2, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So this sets it all up for us. God put the man... Which, by the way, in, in Hebrew, the word for man in, in Genesis 2 here is Adam. So mankind in Hebrew is Adam. God put Adam in the garden to work it and keep it, and he gave him a command. He said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then God gave Adam, this representative of mankind, a warning as to what would happen if he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. If you sin in this way, you will bring death into the world. Now from the surface, this seems like a bit of overkill, right? Like he, he, ate a, he took a bite of a piece of fruit, like not that big a deal. Let me run with our analogy for a minute though. All that happens in a nuclear explosion, I'm probably going to get in a lot of trouble for this because we got some really smart people in this room that are going to check me on it, but all that happens in a nuclear explosion is you get these really, really tiny particles, like, like so tiny you need a special microscope, uh, microscope to even see. All that happens is these little tiny particles are taken apart. That's it. I mean, I, I take Legos apart all the time and nothing bad happens, right? And those are, those are much, much bigger than these little bitty tiny particles, no big deal, right? I know it's a silly comparison, but the reality is that the devastation that comes far exceeds what we might expect on the surface. We look at this story and we're like, wait a minute, the devastation doesn't seem to make sense. It's just a small thing, but we're, we're missing what's actually going on because small sins cause destruction just like small nuclear explosions cause destruction. Here's the other thing though. This act wasn't just a small thing. It was a direct act of rebellion against the king of creation. The king gave a direct command to Adam and Eve, and they ignored it and went the other way. So let's take a look. Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So we can easily see what happened in here. Adam and Eve disobeyed this one direct command from God. That's the mechanics. That's what happened. But there's something going on under the surface. And so we need to back up and take a look at the conversation that was happening. It says, now the serpent, in, in verse 1 there, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and here it is, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So there it is. Adam and Eve ultimately didn't believe God. They wanted to be like God, and, and not just in the way that Paul told us to, to follow Christ, follow him as he follows Christ, wanting to be like him in that way. No, no, no. They wanted to be like God. They wanted attributes that made them godlike, despite the fact that God told them that it was not good for them to do so. So at that point, they were untainted and unaffected by evil. They didn't know what evil was. They had no knowledge of evil but not anymore. And that brought judgment and death. As Paul put it, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. This free gift that Paul is talking about here in Romans is life. It's what he says at the end of this passage in verse 21, eternal life. Let me read verse 16 again. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. A few minutes ago, I talked about other solutions that, that mankind has come up with to address the problem of sin and evil. And each of those solutions uh, address the problems that sin and evil present to a degree. But none of them could ever come up with a way to actually fully address and deal with sin. Sin is still there because man can't address that problem. We can't make sin just go away, and we cannot bring back the life that sin has taken. We all carry with us a guilty verdict, and we can't erase that, and neither can our religions. Paul's immediate context fleshed this out. Here's what's going on in the context of first century Rome when, when he's writing this. I'm going to read a couple of excerpts. Um, of statements made about Caesar Augustus during that time. This is a, a first decree of what's known as the Asian League of the Roman Empire. It says, Since providence, which has divinely disposed our lives, providence is, is being referred to as a, like a godly figure here. Since providence, which has divinely disposed our lives, having employed zeal and ardor, has arranged the most perfect culmination for life by producing Augustus, Listen, who for the benefit of mankind, she, providence, has filled with excellence as if she has granted him as a savior for us and our descendants. A savior who brought war to an end and set all things in peaceful order. And since with his appearance, Caesar exceeded the hopes of all those who had received glad tidings before us, not only surpassing those who had been benefactors before him, but not even leaving any hope of surpassing him for those who are to come in the future. And since the beginning of glad tidings on his account for the world was the birthday of the God. Here's a second passage. This was written by the Roman con uh, proconsul to this Asian league. He said, it's a, it is subject to question whether the birthday of our most divine Caesar spells more joy or blessing. This being a date that we could probably, without fear of contradiction, equate with the beginning of all things, if not in terms of nature, certainly in terms of utility. Seeing that he, Augustus, 
restored stability when everything was collapsing and falling into disarray and gave a new look to the entire world that would have been most happy to accept its own ruin had not the good and common fortune of all been born, Caesar. Therefore, people might justly assume that his birthday spells the beginning of life and real living and marks the end and boundary of any regret that they had themselves been born. We wouldn't need to change much of these statements to have something that could be used to describe Jesus. Augustus was viewed as a great benefactor whose generosity and greatness was unsurpassed. He was, in fact, viewed as a god. He was worshipped as such. And we can see that it was believed that, that peace, in, in Rome it was called the Pax Romana, that peace and even the ability to not regret life was found in him. He's seen as the one who restored order out of chaos. In other words, there was an acknowledgement of the existence of sin and evil. Like, there's chaos out here. There's evil out here. But in the opinions outlined here, Augustus brought peace and freedom from all of that chaos. But there's still no explanation of what happened to all the chaos and who would be held accountable for it. It just says that Augustus basically did away with it. And, and if we look around our world today, I mean, let's be honest. If we look around our world today, we can tell that he eternally did away with all chaos, right? We're all in agreement there, right? Yeah, he was wildly successful. Augustus thought of himself in, in pretty much the same light as these people were talking about. Uh, he wrote an autobiography that is known as The Achievements of the Deified Augustus. Here's, here's two points in there. He said, those who slew my father, I drove into exile, punishing their deeds by due process of law. And afterwards, when they waged war upon the Republic, I twice defeated them in battle. But here's his benevolence. Wars, both civil and foreign, I undertook throughout the world. And when victorious, I spared all citizens who sued for pardon. So he's using some significant legal language here. It's not insignificant to our topic today to think about what he's talking about. Those that he felt had dishonored him were subjected to the full weight of the law. He was going to bring the law down on them. Those, however, who were foreign citizens and were just citizens of places that he had gone and conquered, um, if they would basically repent and, and come and sue, bring their case to the court, then he might spare them. He might give them a pardon um, and allow them to, to be a part of his realm. The way of Jesus is so much different. And Paul lays that out clearly for us. Earlier in Romans 5, he says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. While Augustus made people file suit to get a pardon... Jesus himself satisfied the legal requirements 
on our behalf, and he gives us the royal seal of his Holy Spirit as proof. While Augustus destroyed his enemies, Jesus died on behalf of rebels and traitors. While Augustus merely declared clemency, Jesus actually took the weight of the punishment for sin on himself and died in our place. Jesus dealt with the sin. If you've seen The Office, what Augustus did is to essentially stand up as Michael Scott did and say, I declare clemency. The problem is he had no authority to do so. So the Romans to whom this letter was written would have seen these arguments in a very different light than we tend to. Paul wasn't just talking about Jesus and what he did. He was actually comparing Jesus to Augustus. And Augustus fell woefully short. That would have been, the way that Paul was talking here would have been blasphemous to the Roman imperial cult. But let's keep going. For if, by, for if because of one man's trespass, in verse 17, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Adam's sin, as we've discussed, led to condemnation for all men because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there is hope. Because while Adam opened the door and let sin in the world, and like a vapor, sin permeated throughout, Jesus took our guilt upon himself. Jesus took the blame for all our sin and bore the consequences on our behalf. While we entered the codes to set off the explosion that killed him, he took the detonator on himself and claimed our guilt for pushing the button. He paid the cost so that we could be free. He bore the guilt so that we could live. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Augustus may have been seen as benevolent and gracious, Paul's words here go far beyond that. Instead of killing those who were his enemies, and in fact, those who actually killed him, namely all of mankind, remember Adam, Adam means mankind, Jesus spilled his own blood to pay the ransom. Where Augustus may have been seen as gracious in Jesus, grace abounded all the more. I love that phrase. That phrase could actually be better translated as hyper-abounded. The grace of Augustus couldn't touch the level of grace of Jesus the Messiah. Augustus brought perceived peace through the death of his enemies. Jesus brings real peace with God through the justification of his enemies by his own death. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians. He said, for, his, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin, we became righteous. That is the miracle of the gospel. The righteousness of Jesus is far greater than the sin of Adam, than the sin of mankind. In this passage in Romans 5, there, there's something going on that, that Paul expounds on in, in 2 Corinthians, and, and this will help us. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
See, there was a destiny awaiting all of us. It was the destiny of rebels. And there was nothing any of us could do to head that off. There's a, there's a race in England every year. It's a race down a hill known as Cooper's Hill. Some of y'all have seen this. It's on ESPN every once in a while. Um, well, basically what they're doing is there's this super steep hill that they roll a cheese wheel down and all these people just take off to try to catch this wheel. But it's so steep that once you get running, you really can't stop. And so people basically just roll down the hill. They cannot stop themselves. There's no way to put on the brakes. That was us. We were running headlong down this hill with no brakes, with no way to stop ourselves. But Jesus intervened. And in him, there is a new age, a new era for us. We are no longer caught up in the age of Adam. There's a better man. And in that better man, we are offered the chance to be made new, to be a part of this new mankind that Jesus has created, to be a new creation, to be just and righteous. We have the opportunity to be declared clean, to be declared righteous, to be declared just. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Galatians 6, 14 and 15 says this, But far be it for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. There was no way we could pay the penalty for our sin. By grace, we don't have to because Jesus did on our behalf. We live because he died. Jesus was the better Adam and the better Augustus. He is the true, benevolent, gracious king who lays down his own life that the penalty for our sins would be paid once and for all. So let me ask you to do something today. Stop and think today about your own sin. Think about how hard you have tried to stop doing things that you know are wrong. Think about the times you've known something is wrong, but you've done it anyway. And remember what Paul said, the wages of sin is death. But then don't stop there. Because that's about as far as the gods of the nations could get you. The wages of sin is death. Well, I hope. We serve a different God. We don't serve the gods of the nations. We serve the God who animates the ashes, who breathes breath into dry bones, who enlivens the lifeless, and he gave grace to the guilty, not by ignoring their guilt, but by completing the just requirements of the law in the sacrifice of his son. So sit with the reality of that. Sit in awe of the love of our God for us, who through Jesus reconciled us to himself and declares us justified if we put our faith and hope in him by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone let's pray father i don't know how to grasp the weight of this and i know far too often i downplay the weight of my sin. Pretending like it's not that big a deal, like it's just a little sin. 
pretending like, oh, it doesn't really affect much. Father, I pray that we would, we would see our sin for what it is. And that as we see that, we see how your grace has abounded all the more. How your grace has hyper-abounded. And not just, not just given us life, but given us life abundantly while we were enemies. Father, I pray that this, that this juxtaposition, that this contrast between our, our, what our world would consider to be benevolent and kind, I pray that we would put that alongside who you are and what you've done, and it would just, it wouldn't even, it wouldn't even register for us on the scale when we look at how kind and benevolent and gracious Jesus has been to us. I pray that that would sit in our hearts and that we would know the kindness and the love of Jesus and what it means for us to be welcomed in. Pray that we would know the cost that Jesus paid to welcome us in and we would just sit in awe of that and love you all the more. And we would sit in full thanksgiving. Father, we love you. And we want to love you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.